sell themselves. They require no marketing or advertising. Some plywood before a hurricane, firewood in a power outage, toilet paper on a camping trip. Don't have to try too hard to sell that. Earplugs at a men's retreat. Evergreen trees at Christmas time. Tie-dye at a Grateful Dead reunion. Metamucil at a chili cook-off. Foam tomahawks at an Atlanta Braves game. And of course, championship pennants at an Atlanta United game. Hey, there are certain products that are sure sales. The demand is so great, Walmart doesn't even have to run a special. On my first trip to the island of Haiti, I ate the local food. And after seven days of mystery meat, I was so hungry, I would have given my right arm for a Big Mac. If the Domino's pizza man had stood on my doorstep, he could have named his price. There are situations where a product becomes an easy sale. You'd think when God strategized salvation... He would have offered a plan so appealing that it would have sold itself. No reason to preach and plead. The need would be so apparent, the solution so attractive, as soon as you set it on the shelf, folks would scoop it up. Salvation would be hard to keep in stock. You'd think God would dream up a salvation that made for an easy sell. Yet God did just the opposite. The means that God devised to forgive us of our sin and make us his children and clean up our lives and guarantee us a home in heaven, rather than sell itself, actually provokes an initial repulsion and a resistance. You'd think God would have prescribed a salvation as a tasty cherry-flavored elixir, something that goes down smoothly, but to the contrary, Salvation comes in a pill the size of a golf ball. God deliberately made salvation tough to swallow. You have to gulp hard to get it down. You see, the message of the cross is not palatable to human tastes. Unlike an accessory to our wardrobe, the cross doesn't go with the thing you're wearing. For most people, it clashes with where they're at and with what they're into. In a society that idolizes style and that values vogue, the cross is like an ugly shirt stain you hope is far enough down that you can tuck it into your pants so that no one notices. The message of the cross is an offense to human sensibilities, and that is exactly as God planned. God never intended for salvation to sell itself. God designed the cross to be an affront to all that we hold dear It defies our pride, and it flies in the face of our values, and it shakes up our status quo. You'd think God would have concocted it differently, but you'd think wrong. The trend in churches today is to be trendy. We tend to value relevance above all other traits. It seems it's all about being hip and cool and polished and non-offensive. Today's churches are most often measured by how well they relate to the secular culture around them and the size of the crowd that might attract. And understand, I'm not against being relevant. 
I believe our job is to bring the changeless gospel to a changing world. God's truth is timeless and timely. In fact, when God became man, he connected with his audience. He was relating firsthand to the human plight. He was empathizing with folks, feeling for them, relating to them. This is a big part of Christian ministry. But realize the incarnation was not an end in itself. For Jesus was born to die. His coming to earth led to his crucifixion. God knew that relevance doesn't produce righteousness. That salvation demanded a sacrifice. Though the ministry of Jesus began with his relating to mankind, it ended with him doing what no one else could do. Relevance gave way to holiness. It was a means to an end, but it was never an end in itself. And yet when a church values relevance above all else, it inevitably shies away from the message of the cross. For the cross is not relevant to today's culture, or to any culture for that matter. It is an offense to all that humans hold dear. A church that's all about slick presentations and engaging entertainment and how-to suggestions and self-massaging sermons to the neglect of the cross has missed the whole point of why it even exists. Without the message of the cross, pastors are just babysitters and churches become country clubs. Years ago, Richard Niebuhr warned of a Christianity that preaches a God without wrath, trying to bring men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And tragically, this is happening in churches today. Reminds me of the British chapel. Its stone walls were covered with ivy. Over an arch were engraved the words, We preach Christ crucified. And the men that founded that church did. They preached the cross. But over time, the ivy grew along the arch and covered the word crucified so that the arch read, we preach Christ. And this reflected what had happened to the church's message. They spoke of Christ now, but as an example, a servant, a humanitarian. Over the years, the ivy continued to grow until finally it covered up the word Christ so that it read, we preach. And that's what the church does today. It's abandoned the message of the cross, and it preaches current events and pop psychology and social issues. Let's never forget the message that God uses to forgive sin and save souls and renew minds and transform lives and heal hurts is the cross of Jesus Christ. In this morning's text, the Apostle Paul tells us why God offers salvation through the message of the cross. Paul gives the Corinthians four reasons. First, The cross shocks our senses. Second, the cross blocks our pride. Third, the cross mocks our values. And fourth, the cross locks our hearts. I want us to work line by line through our text this morning and pick out each of these reasons in detail. First, the cross was intended to be a shock to our senses. You know, today, in many ways, the cross has been sanitized and popularized and even secularized. But in the beginning of Christianity, the cross of Jesus was a shock 
to our sense of decorum. It was an ugly, grotesque, disgusting, revolting, repulsive, disturbing kind of thing. You remember in the famous hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, author George Bernard describes the cross of Jesus as the emblem of suffering and shame. Verse 18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says that to those who are perishing, the message of the cross is utter foolishness. And to those who are being saved, the message is utter power. But no one who sees the cross for what it is can ignore it or simply toss it aside as a mere relic. The cross is in your face, man. It has to be reckoned with. God intends for the cross to shock our senses and to grab our attention. You know, today, celebrities, they wear crosses tattooed on their chest. Baseball players cross themselves before they step into the batter's box. Jewelers beat down their gold into earrings and necklaces in the shape of a cross. Even candy makers today market chocolate candy crosses for Christians to eat on Good Friday. But God chose the message of the cross to shock us and to stir us. And that's why Satan has seen to it that the cross has been stripped of much of its shock effect. Many years ago, a cross was erected in a city park in Eugene, Oregon. It became a town landmark. In recent years, this upset some of the opponents of religion who filed a lawsuit to have the cross removed. The court let the cross stay, but listen to their reason. They said, the cross is simply a symbol, universally accepted. It no longer carries religious significance. Thus, it's allowable on public property. The cross no longer has spiritual connotations. Welcome to our modern world. Reminds me of a woman who walked into a Denver jewelry store. She asked the man at the counter if she could see a gold cross. The man answered, a plain one or one with a little man on it? We've been desensitized to the shock of the cross. There was, though, one cross that did provoke the proper reaction. One Easter on a church lawn in Dallas, Texas, a 10-foot-tall cross became the talk of Texas. It stirred controversy and bitter reaction. It upset both church members and atheists alike. Editorials were written. Its photo was in the newspaper and on TV. Outraged people called the local talk shows to vent their anger. What made the cross so controversial was it consisted of weapons that had been confiscated by the Dallas PD. Guns and pistols and knives and bayonets and bullets and bomb fragments, even broken bottles. In fact, the base of the cross consisted of a totaled-out car ripped apart in a DUI accident. The display was surrounded by barbed wire entanglements, the kind you'd see outside of a prison. The good people of Dallas started a petition to have this ugly cross removed. People called it a desecration. Someone even said, how can you turn the cross of Christ into a symbol of violence and pain and suffering? Excuse me? If you were around in the first century A.D., that is exactly how you would have seen the cross. The cross was the most hideous, torturous form of execution ever devised. 
Josephus, the famous Jewish historian who saw firsthand his share of actual crosses, called the cross the most wretched of deaths. Cicero wanted Roman citizens sheltered from even the sight of a cross. He wrote, the idea of a cross should never come near the bodies of Romans, never pass through their thoughts or eyes or ears. Even members of the early church were repulsed by the cross. Did you know the cross was banned from depiction in the arts for the first four centuries of church history? Not until the emperor Constantine abolished crucifixion as a form of execution was the cross turned into an emblem of the church. C.S. Lewis once pointed out, the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. If you were standing before a live crucifixion, you would shiver in horror. You would turn your head. It would turn your stomach. You'd have nightmares for weeks afterwards. Imagine me walking into the church one Sunday wearing a little gold electric chair on my lapel or a silver hypodermic needle on a gold chain around my neck. Would you be offended? Jewelry in the form of an instrument of death, people today would be appalled. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the message of the cross, it was the equivalent of me writing to you about the message of the electric chair. Have you ever happened on a traffic accident after the fact? I mean, a few seconds after it happened, you drive past the tangled metal, broken glasses everywhere, tire marks are tattooed to the street, and you sum up the situation, you shudder, wow, something serious just happened here. Lives have forever been altered. Eternity might have been populated. And this is the conclusion that God intends for you and I to draw when we hear the message of the cross. When we see the Roman cross standing against that dark Jerusalem sky on that lonely hill called Calvary, God wants us to think this was not just business as usual. Something heavy happened here. Reminds me of the mom and the little girl on their way to the zoo. It was during Easter week, and as they drove past church after church, the little girl counted up the crosses. She said, Mommy, how many times did Jesus die? Her mom answered, Only once, dear. Well, the daughter replied, Well, when the, why, well then why are there so many crosses? The mother answered, To help us remember how much Jesus loved us. He died on the cross in our place. Well, the little girl was up in arms. She shouted, How could we ever forget something like that? And indeed, how can we? That's what God thought when he packaged salvation in the message of the cross. The cross was intended to shock our senses and to grab our attention. That's not all. In verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The cross shocks our senses, but then second, it blocks our pride. Paul is quite bold here. He claims that through the cross, God intended to destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. 
The cross of Jesus was designed by God to wipe out all vestiges of human ego and arrogance. At the foot of the cross, Paul taunts the smartest humans. Verse 20, where is the wise? He calls out the, quote, experts to try and refute God's work on the cross. Where is the scribe? He challenges the university professors, the academics. Put the cross under your microscope and see if you can dissect its power. Where is the disputer of this age? Paul says, bring on the debaters and all the quick-witted talk show hosts and let them try to dismiss the cross with their sarcasm. Paul pits the wisdom of the boastful up against the power of the cross, and he concludes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Not even humanity's brightest can get their minds around the wisdom of God. The brilliance of the cross humbles us. Paul continues in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Notice God is not against wisdom. He's not against education or human learning. God just didn't choose these things as vehicles for communicating divine knowledge. The Greek master Socrates once said, Oh, that someone would arise to show us God. Well, Paul lived 500 years after Socrates, and Greece was still in the dark. Paul is, in essence, saying, if God can be known through man's wisdom, then why are the world's wisest standing around talking about God rather than talking to God? You see, the reason is that it's the cross, not wisdom, that lets us know God. Understand, the cross is an anomaly in the history of God. It's an aberration. It's not what we would anticipate from God. It's a twist in the plot that we didn't expect. God is all-powerful. He is all-wise. God destroys the wicked and He vindicates the righteous. So why does He let His only Son die at the hands of evil men? See, the cross was like a smoke detector going off in your house. It's like an engine light illuminating on your dashboard. It's God screaming out, that something has gone wrong. The cross is, in essence, God saying, man has a problem, and it won't get better on its own. In essence, the cross is an affront to our ability to fix things. Man can't fix this. He can't fix himself. And he needs drastic measures. Several years ago, we had a problem with the sliding door on our minivan. I'm not a very mechanically oriented guy, and so my wife took it to two mechanically oriented friends of ours, and neither one of them could repair it. My dad, who is the world's ultimate handyman, worked two days trying to fix that door, but failed. Well, that's when I told Kathy that I would take care of this van myself. I didn't tell her my plan was to take it to the nearby body shop, The guys there got it functional in about five minutes. But when I returned home, Kathy was gone. So I decided to stick some tools in my back pocket and just kind of wait beside the van. And when she drove up, there I was standing next to the repaired van. She was happy to see that the door was fixed, but trust me, she didn't buy my story. I tried to convince her that I had repaired the van myself. And hey, if I could have gotten away with it, If I could have taken credit for that 
fixed door, I probably would have. I mean, what's the crime in being a hero in your wife's eyes every once in a while? I mean, all men want their wife and kids to think there's nothing in the world that they can't fix. But that's exactly why God devised the cross. For one look at Jesus on the cross, behold the bleeding wounds in his hands and in his feet. His eyes rolled back in his head, blood oozing out of the punctures in his forehead. Watch Jesus in excruciating pain as he hikes himself up on the spikes to grab another breath. At the cross, you realize, I can't fix this. If you could fix your sin-wrecked soul, if you could repair your broken heart, if you could clean up your record and whitewash your dirty mind, then Jesus would have never had to go there. The cross would have been unnecessary. The cross was intended to humble us. If salvation came through power, we'd all start lifting weights. If it came through knowledge, we'd all go back to school. But since salvation comes through the cross of Christ, there is nothing we can do but sit there and behold his blood-soaked body and believe in the crucified Christ. Well, the cross, it puts us in our place. Paul finishes verse 21. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The cross destroys all pride. The cross sees to it that once and for all, that God is known not through human achievement or through human knowledge, but through simple faith. Simple faith. In Rembrandt's painting of the crucifixion, he has the dying Savior lifted up on the cross. You also see the expressions of various bystanders. But in the center of the painting, in the blue cap, you see Rembrandt himself. The painter realized that we all belong in the crucifixion scene. That it's my sin and that's your sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. See, the cross happened because you and I needed it to happen. We couldn't fix ourselves, and so Jesus did. But not only does the cross shock our senses and block our pride, but God also intended for the cross to mock our values. For on the cross, it was as if God was destroying all of man's family heirlooms, all of our treasures. He took all of our worldly values, and he, in essence, trashed them. Verse 22 tells us, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. See, the Jews and the Greeks, they represented the two poles of human values. And it's fitting that they expected from God what they valued most. Thus, the Jews wanted a sign, for they were into power. The Greeks sought wisdom, for they were into knowledge. But the cross appealed to neither power or knowledge. In fact, to the Jews, the cross was an indication of weakness. And to the Greeks, it was an act of foolishness. God gave them both the exact opposite of what they wanted. On the cross, it was as if God were scoffing at what both Jews and Greeks valued most. Again, the Jews were into power. Their greatest heroes were known for their powerful exploits. I mean, Moses parted a sea, and Joshua won military victories, and Samson 
was a one-man Philistine wrecking crew. David, a giant killer. Elijah called fire from heaven. And the Jews wanted a Messiah who was just as powerful as the heroes of their past. That's why it's no surprise the masses who followed Jesus as long as he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, oh, they followed him as long as he worked miracles. But once they realized that political power was not his chief concern, they started jumping off the bandwagon. See, Jews wanted a Savior with some punch, not a suffering servant. And again, the Greeks were into knowledge. Remember, these were the descendants of Socrates and Plato. The Greeks were antiquity's great philosophers. Did you know in Athens, the favorite pastime was carefully crafting your philosophy, then debating it on Mars Hill with the resident scholars? Yet where is the brilliance? Where is the sophistication, the intellectual triumph in the cross? Rather than a stroke of genius, the cross seemed like a gigantic mistake. To the Greeks, if God had authored the cross, then God is prone to mistakes and accidents. In the minds of most Greeks, the cross was at best a bungle of efficiency, a waste of human resources, a noble idea spoiled in midstream. At worst, it was a cruel joke. And sometimes I wonder myself, God, why the cross? Why didn't Jesus just toss Pilate out on his ear, slay the Roman legions with a single swipe, and take the throne for himself right then and there? Jesus, why not impress us with your power? Like giddy little schoolgirls, let us squeeze your muscle and marvel at your strength. Or Jesus, why didn't you show off your wisdom? Why didn't you journey to Athens and match wits with the smartest Greeks? Put your brilliance on display. You could have explained the mysteries of life and thrilled them and boggled their brains with your omniscience. But oh, the cross. According to human taste, the cross is an embarrassment. In verse 22, Paul writes, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. To the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. The phrase is a translation of the Greek word scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. The Jewish scriptures declared, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There was no room in Jewish theology or in its value system for a martyred Messiah. For Paul to preach Christ crucified was sheer scandalous to the Jews. The cross was blasphemous to the Jews, and it was foolishness or silliness to the Greeks. And understand, the last 2,000 years has done very little to alter human values. For we're still drawn to those who have clout and power. The famous, the sexy, the strong, the privileged, the political. They're still the ones at center stage. We're still impressed with education and reputation and sophistication. In fact, the two anathemas in our scientific age are to appear either foolish or weak. It's amazing how even Christians have tried to remake Paul's message. They have tried to spruce up Christ crucified to appeal to modern values. Years ago, 
Norm Evans, a former Miami Dolphins lineman, he wrote a book entitled On God's Squad. In his book, he writes this, I guarantee you Christ would be the toughest guy who ever played the game of football. If he were alive today, he'd be a six-foot-six-inch, 260-pound defensive tackle who would always make the big plays. He would be hard to keep out of the backfield for offensive linemen like myself. How about that for an object of power? Imagine Jesus, a six-foot-six, 260-pound defensive lineman. Fritz Peterson, a former New York Yankee, imagines Jesus in a baseball uniform. He wrote this, I firmly believe that if Jesus Christ was sliding into second base, he would knock the second baseman into left field to break up the double play. Christ might not throw a spitball, but he would play hard within the rules. Wait a minute. Let's take Jesus off the cross and let's put him on the defensive line. Let's make him a sack specialist. Let's wipe the blood off of his beaten body and put him in a uniform adorned with a Nike swoosh and send him into second base with his spikes high. Let's clean up his image. People today are into power, not weakness. In fact, Broadway composer Andrew Lloyd Webber, he goes even further. As he planned a revival of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, he commented on how he would need to cast the lead role. He, he said, Jesus has got to have sex appeal and real star quality. Trust me, there's nothing sexy or glamorous about Christ crucified. And that is exactly what God intended. For the cross of Christ is an affront to our values of physical power and human wisdom and pleasing appearance. The cross is a satire on what we treasure most. On the cross, it was as if God was mocking beauty and brawn and brains. The cross makes fun of our puny muscles and our shallow logic and our preoccupation with appearance. The message of the cross taps us on the shoulder and asks us the question, why are we wasting so much time at the health club when the most powerful act in history was accomplished through weakness? The cross challenges us. Why put so much stock in degrees and intellectual achievement when the wisdom of man calls God's wisdom foolishness? The cross confronts the image conscious. Why worry about that hair that won't lay down when the Son of God hang naked and bleeding from an ugly cross? This is why Paul says, of those who heard and received the message, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The message of the cross is more than mere facts about Jesus' crucifixion. It's God's attempt to rearrange our priorities and our values. For instead of physical power and human wisdom, our focus should be on the obedience that Jesus modeled on the cross. His cross schools us on commitment and courage. Behold Jesus on the tree, and it teaches us what love is really all about. The cross is God's way of saying, we've gotten what's important all twisted up. Well, Paul closes his thought in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men.
The message of the cross shocks our senses. It mocks our values. It blocks all our pride. But finally, for those who understand it, it locks our hearts forever. For once you've seen the cross for what it truly is, its wisdom and its power, it captures your allegiance forever. See, God knew that the cross would be initially repulsive, that we have to get over our cultural refinement to accept it. God knew that to embrace the cross, we'd have to humble our hearts and step over our sinful pride. And God knew that it would challenge our values, that it would force us to reassess and rearrange our priorities. God knows that handy men and handy women have a hard time admitting that there's stuff they can't fix. But once you trust in the cross, its wonder and its power captures your imagination and your loyalties forever. Reminds me of a World War II soldier who had grown weary of battle. He decided to go AWOL. It was a dark, rainy night when he slipped away from camp. And after wandering for hours in the woods of southern France, he came to a pole by the roadside. He decided to climb up the pole, get above the treetops, and see if he could spot a landmark, somehow get his bearings. When he reached the top of what he thought was a telephone pole, a lightning bolt illuminated the night sky. The soldier turned toward the pole and right into the face of the crucified Christ. See, what he thought had been a telephone pole was a giant roadside crucifix, common there in southern France. The soldier said that one look at Jesus on the cross restored to him his courage and his bravery. The thought of what Jesus did for him re-energized him for battle. If Jesus endured the cross for him, he could hold his post just a little longer. And this is what the cross does for us. It locks our hearts. and It holds us in tight allegiance to our master. How can you refuse a love that bore the cross? See, the message of the cross is not a product that sells itself. There are formidable barriers to overcome for us to grasp its power and its beauty and its wisdom. The cross sees to it that we come to God on His terms rather than our own. The cross is a hard pill to swallow, but it is the medicine that we most desperately need. And God knows if a man or if a woman, if a boy or a girl is ready and willing to come and embrace the cross to bypass their sensibilities and to rethink their priorities and to set aside their pride, then they will never leave. They'll stay locked to the cross forever. Again, as John Bernard puts it, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And then the chorus, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. God chooses for us to enter his kingdom through the door of paradox. Accept the weakness of the cross and he unleashes his awesome power. Embrace its foolishness and you become privy to boundless wisdom. The cross is more powerful than nuclear fission. 
It's more intellectually challenging than quantum physics, but you never know it until you shed your sensibilities and rethink your values and renounce your pride and put all your faith in the crucified Christ. The message of the cross is not an easy sell. It requires some serious rearranging, but it is still the greatest bargain in history. God keeps all his treasures hidden beneath an ugly, uncouth, uncultured cross. Embrace the cross and you'll find the power and wisdom of Almighty God. It is true. X marks the spot. At a cursed cross is where we find all of God's blessings. If you want those blessings this morning, you'll come to the cross. Dave Hutto used to run a camp in Alabama on a mountain A huge cross illuminated the night sky. One day a man appeared on Hutto's doorstep. He asked Dave if he could go and see this cross. As they headed up the mountain, he explained the reason for his visit. He said that he was the pilot of a small plane that had taken off in terrible weather from Atlanta to Birmingham. In fact, the man had left Atlanta in a deep depression. He was contemplating suicide. And that's why he didn't mind leaving in such dangerous conditions. Well, when the man flew over the state line, he got into trouble. The fog was so thick, his visibility was near zero. He was lost. He was scared. And for the first time in years, he prayed. Suddenly, through the fog, he saw this lighted cross. He radioed the tower. The controllers knew of the cross, and they used it to guide the pilot to safety. And the experience changed this man's life. As Dave Hutto and his new friend stood in front of the cross, The man dropped to his knees and he prayed, Lord, I have found my way back and I'll never be the same. The cross has led many a person back to God. Here is where God gets our attention. It's where he reorders our priorities. It's where he abolishes our pride. At the cross, our love for Jesus forms a cord so strong it never breaks. The cross captures our hearts. He never lets it go. Did you know the word crux is from the word crucifixion? It speaks of the cross. The gospel Paul preached makes the cross of Jesus the crux of all that we do. The Jews stumbled over the cross. The Greeks laughed it off as foolishness and both sadly, tragically perished in their sin. But those who trust in the cross discover the power of God. And the wisdom of God, let's not just embrace the message of the cross. Let's relish it and rejoice in it and marvel at it. And let's go one step further. Let's proclaim it boldly. Let's share it with everyone we can. For as the little girl said, how could we ever forget something like that?